парой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердце наши заряды. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. Now, long-time listeners will know that I'm periodically called upon to produce audio spotlights on faculty affiliated with the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, This short podcast that you're hearing right now is one of those times, and it features the Hungarian international relations scholar Zoltan Kelemen on neo-medievalism and the place of the Middle Ages in our present-day imagination. Zoltan Kelleman is Assistant Professor of International Relations at Corvinus University in Budapest, Hungary. He's currently the Fulbright Visiting Professor at the University of Pittsburgh for the fall of 2022, and he's finishing up a book on neo-medievalism and the European Union. Here's The Shock of Neo-Medievalism, my faculty profile of Zoltan Kelleman. And in many disciplines, people discuss that today we are entering a period perhaps that could be labeled as neo-medieval, as the new Middle Ages. So my name is Zoltan Kelemen and I am an assistant professor at Corvinus University of Budapest. I am from Hungary. I was born and raised in Budapest. And uh, my field of research is in international relations. I'm looking at the European Union from a neo-medieval perspective. I've been to Canada, but not to the U.S. I was really surprised that both New York and Pittsburgh have excellent public transportation by American standards. At least I expected no, nothing, none of that in Pittsburgh. So that was a very positive thing. Another thing that I noticed is that you use Apple in a way more creative way than we do. We have a lot of Apple in Hungary, but your apple cider, your apple pie is just over the top. I tried a vinegar apple pie in a cafe, and that was just blowing my mind. How could this be so good, and why don't we have that? I started studying law. Uh, when I finished high school, and I really hated it, and it's very boring, and I was exposed to these codes, and, you know, I had to memorize, I remember, provisions and paragraphs, and it seemed to be like an endless, boring task without any context. And after two years, I decided to switch to international relations, where I could study history, a bit of uh, economy, law, and political science, and these together started to make sense. And in the end, I realized that law interested me, but from a different perspective. It was international law partially, and also the concept of the rule of law from a political science history of ideas perspective. Many scholars argue that the post-Westphalian, the post-modern international system from the late 20th century onwards resembles more the Middle Ages than the modern era. You might know that the Westphalian system was based on the idea that states are the exclusive actors of international relations and the exclusive subjects of international law. 
People essentially say that even the concept of the Westphalian sovereignty-based international system was something that was only imagined. It was an imagined international system. We've never really had that. We've always had actors other than the states. There was at least the belief, the idea, the dream, the image of this Westphalian statehood. And of course, if people, if the mass majority of scholars and politicians buy into this belief, then it becomes to a degree reality. If you think of uh, the European concert, which was born after 1814 uh, in the Congress of Vienna in 1815, you realize that simply the belief that these powers who were there in the Congress of Vienna could shape the future of Europe simply because this belief was there in the minds of the politicians and they acted according to the rules that they've created themselves, it transformed itself into reality mm -hmm. to a degree. But of course, it was never a laboratory kind of uh, regime where, it, where only the states mm -hmm. were acting. Today, this is not the case anymore. We have actors above the states, within the states, and below them who are questioning their authority, who are eroding their sovereignty. Just think of multinational companies, international organizations above the states, NGOs within them, and other tendencies like transnational migration, territorial separatism, urbanization that erode the sovereignty of the state. And in a structural sense, this is something that resembles the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, in Europe, there you had actors above the kingdoms, within and below the kingdoms, who were questioning the authority of the kings. But what people noticed after 1945, that the, their relevance was on the rise. Scholars started to write about these things. In the 1960s, Arnold Wolfers in international relations started thinking about it. In 1977, it was Hedley Bull who wrote his seminal work, which was about the anarchical society, the society of, of, of states and of international relations, where he thought that the neo-medieval system might emerge during the Cold War or after the Cold War. And uh, it's also important, I think, to mention that it's not something that only international relations and political science scholars realized. It was there also in cultural studies, historians, semioticians claim this, for instance, Umberto Eco. Probably because of the fact that I was working in the television and so I was provoked by the existence of, my me of mass media. I had started to, to analyze the problem of mass media. He claimed that in the field of culture, we're experiencing a re-medievalization of the world. And he, in the 1970s, started writing studies on this. So I was, uh, on one side, interested in high experimental art, and on the other side, in what was conceived at that time, the lower uh, side. Then at that point I felt schizophrenic. I say, but what is the link between those two forms of, of, of expression? Because he realized that with the rise of television and with television entering the average household, people are being exposed to images to the extent that we haven't really seen them being exposed to before uh, the modern era, uh, maybe in the Middle Ages. That was the time when the image became so exclusively dominant mm -hmm. in public discourse. He was comparing the television set to the frescoes, the tainted windows of the churches. That was the way an average commoner could relate to the Bible and the biblical stories and not the text in the Bible. And if you think of what happened in the past 50 years with the rise of internet, with uh, social media, with YouTube, with mm -hmm. memes, it is definitely true that, again, the relevance of the text is being, to a degree, well, taken over by the image. Right. So this is something that makes democracy function in a very different way from what we had before 1945, where the written debate was crucial 
Now, in the video era, in the meme era, in the social media era, I think the statements of Umberto Eco are being more relevant than any time before. I was quite interested in the way so-called uh, human, human rights were born out of a medieval category. Uh, I realized that as I was reading that human rights is basically a secularized version of what we call natural rights or natural law in the Middle Ages. And I was really surprised that the concept of, right, of a right, of a personal right, of, uh, of me having rights is not a Roman concept and not a modern concept the phrase that I can have rights was invented in the Middle Ages. So that was something mind-blowing, realizing that the high Middle Ages was basically responsible for the birth of modern-day human rights to a degree and for the modern rights language that we speak today. You cannot just characterize the Middle Ages by a single adjective that was dark or with a single a few, few words. It was a thousand-year-long period. Right. Since the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, traditional, that's when we think the Middle Ages started until the discovery of the Americas. And it is true that it had some really dark moments. One century that was particularly dark was the, was the 10th. Europe and European civilization was on the verge of collapse. It was not sure that that civilization could survive based on Christianity, Roman, Greek heritage. It really was on the brink of collapse. That was a dark period. But other than that, some scholars already in the early 20th century described the Middle Ages as waves of renaissances. And uh, the reason why we were fascinated by it because it's so colorful. It's so different. Renaissance is part of the Middle Ages. Gothic architecture is part of the Middle Ages. And Romanesque architecture is part of it. The early Middle Ages, which is so dark, is also an element in it. So if there is anything you want to portray in a, in a television series or in a good book, you will find it in the Middle Ages. And at the same time, many of the tropes, many of the ideas that are very popular to this day in, in, in pop culture and public entertainment were born in the Middle Ages. The chivalric romance, the lone knight, you know, just think of not just the 21st century, but the 20th, all these series like Knight Rider. Michael Knight, a young loner on a crusade to champion the cause of the innocent, the helpless, the powerless, in a world of criminals who operate above the law. That was, that's a medieval title, horse and a knight, knight rider. It's a chivalric romance in a way. One against the whole of the world. We are under constant siege. Everyone is against us. So you had many of these instances, not just in books, and not just Tolkien and not just The Lord of the Rings, but in public entertainment. And also in the 21st century, you have Game of Thrones. And even in, in the field of uh, artistic cinema, you find very interesting uh, elements of the Middle Ages. So if you, people go back to the actual Middle Ages and rediscover the extreme colorfulness of it, that is already an upside of dealing with neo-medievalism. And also, with this understanding, perhaps the level of fear could be diminished in people. If they realize that we are uh, maybe entering a new phase, but if we call, even if we call it neo-medieval, it is not something necessarily scary. So they are a reaction to globalization. They are a reaction to the fear that people have because of losing the sense of, of power, losing the sense that they have any influence on power. 
And you can see this 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 fear, especially when you think of uh, the co- concept of post-truth. People are in an era now when they don't know they don't know what is what is right, what is wrong, what is true. They don't know where power is, mm-hmm. and this is something extremely confusing. Because, and that is why you have so many you know, conspiracy theories everywhere. Is it in the hands of Google in the end? Is it in the hands of Facebook? Is it the UN? Is it the Bilderberg Group? Is it George Soros? They have power. Or not the nation state? Who has power? People are not understanding the world. They're questioning, asking constantly, who has power? I'm changing my government constantly and nothing changes. Who? They don't have power, apparently. What can I do? Well, then it's really tempting as a politician to say, I have it and I'll show it to you. And I think it, this is the reaction. A successful politician understood that the need, the most important need that people had developed in the wake of globalization was this knowledge of where power is. They wanted to know where the, who, who, in whose hands they can find power, who they can turn to if there is something that should be, that should be fixed. And authoritarian politicians, illiberal leaders, uh, spin dictators, they realize that this is the political product that they can sell the best, an unambiguous victory. Before the realization, politicians often said when they could not deliver on their campaign promises that I can't do it because of the separation of powers, because of the impartial judge. I can't do it because of the European Union. These people don't say that. They say they do not, do not matter. The checks and balances, the separation of powers, irrelevant. Why? It is irrelevant because we're living in a new era, in a new era where we're under siege, we're under constant threat. We have to gather all of our resources and all of our power, preferably in one hand. And therefore, this sentiment is there that we are alone. We are on our own against this whole globalized world that is taking us under siege, that tries to, that tries to erase us and our way of life from the planet. And this is the message that Viktor Orban understood very well should be spread around. And uh, he is the only hero who is on his own fighting against all this. And this, I think, is the image that you can see with Vladimir Putin in Russia. And I believe Erdogan is also trying to portray himself as a lone crusader who is saving his nation and leading the nation to salvation. So I think it is, again, a pattern a narrative, a fairy tale that people have always liked to embrace, and now it's delivered or now it's transplanted into the field of politics. And another thing that they they realize that people need is some kind of an ideology, especially in Europe, on a continent where the feel in the 90s and the 2000s was that we've tried everything and nothing worked. You know, we've tried fascism, Nazism, communism, even liberal democracy, and none of these seem to rule about paradise. And once they realized, especially around 2006 and 2008, that it's, it's, it's another promise that is not delivering, then the, the embitterment and uh, the disillusionment was even deeper, which explains why people were so ready to vote for anything else. And Viktor Orban offered this anything else in right. a quiet, articulated manner. And these leaders realized that the power of the personality the power of the individual, the power of, of charming voters is something that could replace even that. You were asking me about watersheds. Mm-hmm. Well, these politicians give you watersheds all the time in all of their speeches. Viktor Orban is in love with watersheds. He says that 2008 was a watershed. After that, nothing is the way it used to be before. He says 2015, the migration crisis, a major watershed. Now we have to concentrate our power. Of 2020, the pandemic is a watershed. Now we do not even need democracy. We can manage... Hungary through executive orders. 
there's constantly a watershed that questions the relevance of the separation of powers, the checks and balances, and everything that we call liberal democracy. So when I'm in a classroom, it is very easy for students to steer the discussion in a particular direction. I'm ready to jump in, I'm ready to go with them. Well, in the class, uh, it's called Rule of Law and Democracy in Europe. And in the first half of the semester, we focus on the birth and the rise of these two concepts in European history. We try to understand why they were born in Europe. Of course, the United States of America is built on that. So I think it is relevant for them to see where it comes from. In the second half, we are focusing on uh, what went wrong with them over the last 20 to 30 years. So we try to understand the causes behind the so-called democratic deficit of the European Union, the rise of illiberal democracy in Hungary and Poland, Russian propaganda undermining these, Russian propaganda questioning the relevance of the rule of law and democracy, and disinformation. So the problems we have, these are the things that we are trying to understand. And the main message that I hope will uh, get across is that while the rule of law had a continuous development in European intellectual history, democracy was something uh, quite, had a rather unorganic development. After the demise of Athens in uh, antiquity, until the 18th century, it was almost non-existent, even in, po even in political discourse, the concept of democracy. It was thought to be the tyranny of the majority. And it wasn't until Rousseau rediscovered it in the 18th century that it became something trendy again, first in the field of intellectual history and then in political reality. And if this realization is there that democracy is something that has a less continuous development and rule of law is something that has almost continually been present in Europe, if that message somehow gets across, I'm satisfied. What the moral is to be learned from that is basically up to the students. Yeah.